note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of drug use, mental health conditions, domestic violence, racism, miscarriage, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. When people have been missing for years, details are forgotten. Memories can soften under rose-colored glasses. We forget the imperfections of those we loved. But other times, their memory is overshadowed by something less flattering, something beyond their control. Today, I'm looking for a man who disappeared twice, once off the coast of Mazatlan, Mexico in 1974, then again behind the incredibly popular book and movie character he inspired. In the decades since his disappearance, fiction has obscured an actual life. And it's important we don't let the real man vanish behind a caricature. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet a Chicano writer, revolutionary, and lawyer. He fought for Chicano civil rights in the 1960s before his mysterious disappearance in 1974. His given name is Oscar Zeta Acosta Fierro, but I'll call him by his chosen name, Zeta. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Before we dive into Zeta's story, there are two things you should know. First, finding the facts isn't easy, because in his memoirs, Zeta plays fast and loose with details. See, Zeta is the co-pioneer of gonzo journalism. This is a writing style where real events are filtered through the author's perspective, and details are often changed to serve the story. For example, in his book, Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, Zeta makes himself a year older than he really was, 33 instead of 32. Why 33? Well, in the book, Zeta goes through a psychological death and rebirth. He changed his age so he could compare himself to Jesus, who, according to the Bible, died and was reborn when he was 33 years old. The trouble is, this led to inaccurate reporting about Zeta's real age and birth date. And that's not the only reason it's tough to separate truth from fiction. The second thing you need to know is Zeta's memory is overshadowed by a parody of him. He inspired Dr. Gonzo, the sidekick character in Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Dr. Gonzo spends the book using drugs, committing crimes, and giving bad legal advice. Thanks to the book's popularity and the movie based on it, tons of people know Dr. Gonzo. Many even know he's based on Oscar Zeta Acosta, but they don't know Zeta himself. That's why I wanted to share an account of the real missing person. 
the truth of his life and his legacy. Let's start from the beginning. In 1935, Zeta is born as Oscar Acosta Fierro, the American son of Mexican immigrants. He grows up in Riverbank, California. Zeta is a high achiever. He becomes high school class president, joins the marching band, and gets so good at the clarinet, the University of Southern California offers him a music scholarship. But Zeta faces challenges too, particularly around his identity. Regardless of his accomplishments, he has this constant feeling of being an outsider. He's not Mexican like his parents, but he's not white like his classmates. He doesn't know where he fits in. As a young adult, Zeta boomerangs between jobs and lifestyles, trying to find out where he belongs. He declines the USC scholarship and joins the Air Force. He converts from Catholicism to Protestantism and becomes an Air Force minister. But soon enough, Zeta realizes none of this feels right. He quits preaching, gets an honorable discharge, and enrolls in the creative writing program at Modesto Junior College. Biographers tend to gloss over this time in Zeta's life, but I think it's important. Beginning in his early 20s, writing is a huge part of who he is. It's one identity he keeps coming back to, even as he picks up new ones, like husband and father-to-be. By the late 1950s, Zeta's married to a girl named Betty with a baby on the way. He shuffles through odd jobs to support his family. Betty says he even works as a chemist for a while, apparently hired on charisma alone. But that job doesn't last, and neither does the marriage. In 1959, Zeta leaves his wife and newborn son, Marco. Betty isn't surprised. Zeta's done this a few times, though he always comes back. She even convinces him to see a psychiatrist about it, which doesn't seem to help. Zeta's just not someone who can sit still, and Betty can't tolerate his behavior with a baby in the picture. So by 1962, they're divorced. Zeta leaves Modesto again, this time for Oakland, and studies law at night school. Four years later, when he's 31, he lands his first lawyer job at the East Oakland Legal Aid Society. According to his autobiography, he's helping poor women win restraining orders and child support. According to his son, Marco, he's representing tenants' rights. Either way, it's meaningful work. But like everything else with Zeta, it gets old fast. In 1967, just one year into his law career, he quits his job to take a road trip around the American Southwest and Mexico. Once again, he throws caution to the wind in search of his true self. At certain points, he travels with his son, Marco, who's now eight years old. At others, he uses recreational drugs, which isn't new. Zeta's been experimenting with drugs like LSD and amphetamine since he was a teenager. Still, he gets into trouble. It's not clear if he's high at the time, but at one point, he picks a fight with a hotel receptionist and gets thrown into a Mexican jail. And during his tour of the Southwest, he finally finds what he's been looking for, his identity, his people, the Chicanos. Chicano is a new term in the 1960s, referring to those of Mexican and indigenous descent in the American Southwest. For Zeta and others who embrace the identity, it's more specific than Latino and more personal than Mexican-American. It honors a feeling Zeta's had since he was a child. He's not quite Mexican and he's not quite American. He's in between, he's Chicano. It's also a political term. 
Chicano activists like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta came together to campaign for their rights. They form a labor union, fight systematic racism, and raise awareness of disparities in education. Zeta joins the charge with enthusiasm. Around this time, he gives himself the name Zeta, like the Spanish letter Z. It carries a lot of meaning for him. Zeta is the sign of Zorro, a vigilante who defends Mexicans from oppression. And General Zeta is the character in the 1959 film La Cucaracha, who Oscar Zeta Acosta calls the hero of Pancho Villa's revolution. With a new name, Zeta dubs himself a revolutionary. He believes Chicanos deserve to reclaim their land and govern themselves. By the summer of 1967, he's talking about, quote, ripping the system apart like a pile of cheap hay. That summer, Zeta's at a bar in Aspen, Colorado, preaching revolution to anyone who will listen. This is when he meets Hunter S. Thompson, the man who will eventually write Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Over the next few months, the two grow close enough that Thompson remembers Zeta as, quote, an old friend and occasional antagonist. But even though Zeta has fun in Aspen, he's as restless as ever. By 1968, he's trying to figure out his next step, how to turn his passion into action. He's working in a restaurant when he sees it, a TV newscast about 13 Chicanos who've been indicted for conspiracy in Los Angeles. Dubbed the East Side 13, they'd organized a school walkout to protest the lack of resources and opportunities in primarily Chicano schools. The walkout involved thousands of students chanting and holding signs. But the government's only prosecuting the 13 organizers. They're labeled as a disruption, even called communists, which is a big accusation in 1968. If they're found guilty of conspiracy, the charges could send them to prison for over 40 years. They need a lawyer. And Zeta decides he is that lawyer. He packs his bags and moves to LA. He prints business cards with his newest name, Buffalo Z. Brown, Chicano lawyer. He picks Buffalo because it's, quote, the animal everybody slaughtered. Both the cowboys and the Indians are out to get them. To him, buffaloes are just like Chicanos or the cockroach people as he now self-identifies, stomped out by anyone and everyone. Finally, he's found his mission. He writes, quote, once in every century, there comes a man who has chosen to speak for his people. Moses, Mao, and Martin are examples. Who's to say that I am not such a man? Zeta suits up for court. It's time to become the voice of his people. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi, listeners. It's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from ParCast, Unexplained Mysteries. With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.
1968, at 33 years old, Oscar Zeta Acosta rolls into Los Angeles and somehow charms his way onto the legal team representing the Eastside 13. It's not clear how much he's paid or if he's doing it pro bono. He may have even flirted his way into the case because before long, he's dating one of the paralegals, Socorro Aganiga. But it doesn't matter how Zeta got there. He's found his people, his purpose. He throws his heart and soul into defending these high schoolers. And as one might expect, it's an uphill battle. According to scholar Ian F. Haney Lopez, East LA is 87% Chicano at the time, which means that the East Side 13's jury should also be mostly Chicano. Instead, it's mostly white. To Zeta, this is grounds for dismissal. How can his clients get a fair trial when none of their peers are on the jury? In fact, he finds that over the past 10 years, only three Chicanos have been selected for a Los Angeles grand jury, just three out of 210 jurors. That's just over 1%. Worse, Zeta finds that statistics are similar across the state of California. He argues that the entire Eastside 13 case should be thrown out for racism. His argument is powerful, but then the case gets way more complicated. By early 1969, the Chicano civil rights protests have garnered enough attention that the state of California takes action by holding an educational conference in Los Angeles. The stated goal is to work through issues at these primarily Chicano schools. It's a big deal. The state rents out the Biltmore Hotel downtown, known for hosting the Oscars and JFK. Governor Ronald Reagan comes all the way from Sacramento. But during that conference, in fact, while Reagan's speaking, protesters, including some of the Eastside 13, set the hotel on fire. Though Reagan's there to help, they don't like him. They don't like the government, and they don't want to be lectured. In their eyes, this conference is a band-aid, not a solution. But setting the building on fire isn't a solution either. Suddenly, three of Zeta's clients are facing multiple charges, including arson. Their possible sentences rise from 40 years to life. Zeta doesn't back down. He doubles down, signing on as a lead attorney in this second case. They call it the Biltmore Six, and Zeta's determined to keep them out of jail. Now, the Biltmore Six clearly committed arson, damaged a historic building, and endangered hundreds of lives. I won't argue that they're not criminals. And neither does Zeta. But like with the Eastside 13 case, he focuses on getting the charges thrown out. He argues the crimes don't matter if the defendants can't get a fair trial. And maybe a life sentence is too harsh for a crime where no one was actually hurt. Maybe the real problem is the system. According to scholar Mary Romero, Zeta spends months building his case. He gets help from the ACLU, the National Lawyers Guild, and numerous Chicano law students. He solicits donations from local Chicano leaders to help pay for the defense. Between both trials, he calls 109 witnesses. He also adopts a new persona, leaning into the Chicano firebrand image. He's loud, arrogant, and brash. Twice, he screams at the judge and is cited for contempt of court. When Zeta marries the paralegal he's been romancing, Socorro, he dresses like a revolutionary. Then he emblazons an Aztec war god on his business cards. He writes in the revolt of the cockroach people. 
This upsets the judges. According to documentarian Philip Rodriguez, Zeta once walks into court in a guayabera, a style of shirt popular among Chicanos. Another time, he shows up barefoot. This also upsets the judges. He sasses them in court. He's held in contempt. Eventually, things get so heated, Zeta sets a judge's lawn on fire. Obviously, this really upsets the judges. It's also just not the brightest idea during his client's arson trial. But for Zeta, it really isn't about this specific case. It's so much bigger than that. And the courtroom isn't the only way to change the system. In 1970, 35-year-old Zeta joins the race for Sheriff of Los Angeles. He runs with the Raza Unida party, whose platform centers on Chicano rights. And if every Chicano rallies behind him, he might just win. At this point, Zeta probably sees himself at the precipice of a long and public career. In actuality, this is his peak, because that summer, everything falls apart. In June, police arrest Zeta for amphetamine possession. But even though he's actively running for sheriff and defending two buzzy court cases, his arrest doesn't garner much public attention. According to Hunter S. Thompson, Zeta litigates to clear his name, and in doing so, realizes that actually there's not much name to clear. He's not the hotshot voice of a generation he thought he was. Largely, he's seen as an inexperienced lawyer with a big mouth and a penchant for drug use. Even though he gets over 100,000 votes, no one is surprised when he loses his campaign for sheriff. Then things continue to spiral. A few months later, a Chicano journalist and friend is murdered by police. In 1971, Zeta's wife has a miscarriage. Zeta preserves the fetus in a jar of tequila and displays it on their mantle next to a painting of an Aztec god. It seems clear to everyone who loves him that he's taking all of this very hard. Even though he manages to get both the Eastside 13 and the Biltmore 6 acquitted, which is a massive win, Zeta quits law. He doesn't know how to move forward or who he wants to be anymore. Just as Zeta hits rock bottom, his wife leaves him. He copes the way he always has, by running away, this time to Las Vegas with Hunter S. Thompson. Officially, the trip is so Thompson can cover an off-road race, the Mint 400. Unofficially, it's so Thompson and Zeta can work together on an article about the Chicano journalist who was murdered. Though, as you may have already figured out, this work trip isn't all business. Thompson and Zeta spend two days running around Vegas high on amphetamines. By the end of the weekend, gonzo journalism is born. Thompson's article about the Mint 400 morphs into fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And Oscar Zeta Acosta finds his next identity, author. But like everything else, he has to fight for it. Fear and Loathing is set to be published through Rolling Stone Magazine's imprint, but Hunter S. Thompson doesn't want to give his friend credit for his part in writing the manuscript, even when Zeta asks, which makes Rolling Stone nervous. Because while Thompson fictionalized certain elements of the story, so much of it is autobiographical. It's hard to separate truth from fiction, and a lot of the story is criminal. In the book, Dr. Gonzo breaks and enters, impersonates a police officer, and threatens to bomb a house, in addition to using a litany of illegal drugs. If found guilty of even one of these offenses in court, Zeta would be disbarred. And if the book gets published, Zeta technically has a case for a libel suit. 
Thompson's fix is to change Dr. Gonzo's race from Chicano to Samoan, but it's not enough. Rolling Stone's legal department says Zeta is too easily identifiable as the inspiration for Dr. Gonzo. They need him to sign an agreement that he won't sue before the book comes out, which is easier said than done because Zeta's run off again, this time to Mazatlan, Mexico. When the publishers finally get in touch, he says he only takes offense to one thing, the depiction of Dr. Gonzo as Samoan. Portray him using drugs, committing crimes, and giving terrible legal advice, no problem. But dare to separate Oscar Zeta Acosta from his Chicano identity, that's gonna cost you. At this point, the book's ready to go to the presses. All the wheels are turning. It's too late for rewrites. Rolling Stone manages to get Zeta in for a meeting, and allegedly, he graffitis his name in the office bathroom. He's a man with nothing left to lose. Eventually, Thompson Zeta and Rolling Stone come to an agreement. Zeta's name and picture will appear on the book jacket. He won't be credited as an author, but as an inspiration. In addition, Zeta will release all claims for a libel suit. Dr. Gonzo will stay Samoan and Zeta will get a two-book deal to publish his own work. He spends the next two years writing like a madman. This is Zeta's newest chance to make his name, to cement himself as the voice of his people. Everything he couldn't do as a preacher or a lawyer, he's going to do with these books. Along the way, Hunter S. Thompson and Zeta make up. It probably helps that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a hit, and Thompson realizes that's in part due to Zeta. Now it's time for Zeta to have hits of his own, the autobiography of the brown buffalo and the revolt of the cockroach people. Except the books don't sell. Oscar Zeta Acosta doesn't become a household name like Hunter S. Thompson. In the fall of 1973, Playboy does a story about Thompson inventing gonzo journalism. In a letter to the editor, Zeta writes in a correction. He co-invented the style. Playboy publishes the letter and leaves it at that. Eventually, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas gets a reprint, without Zeta's name and photo. By the end of 1973, Zeta's crumbling. He's failed at two marriages, two books, and two different legal careers. He's been reduced from a man at the front of a movement to a side character in his own story. He copes the only way he knows how. He runs back to Mazatlan, Mexico. And the next thing he writes is his last will and testament. In early 1974, 39-year-old Oscar Zeta Acosta leaves California for Mexico. According to biographer Alan Stavins, Zeta tells his mother he's going to write another book down there. But that's not his only plan. He's going into the drug business. Now, Zeta's always been a wild card, but this feels like a big shift, even for him. It's hard to say exactly what drove him to join the cartel, but we do know that by 1974, Zeta's broke. He almost always has been. The drug trade may have seemed like the easiest way to make quick money while working on his book. And remember, Zeta's had a really difficult few years, so it's possible he wasn't in the best headspace to make smart decisions. Either way, he heads to Mexico. Zeta leaves behind a handwritten will. According to his son, Marco, this isn't unusual. Zeta's left plenty of wills throughout his life. He spends the next five months in Mazatlan writing and trafficking cocaine. 
The evening of May 15, 1974, Zeta calls Marco, who's now a teen. Zeta says he's sailing back to Santa Cruz, California on, quote, a boat full of white snow. He'll see Marco in a few weeks while he's in town to sell drugs. Marco waits a month for his dad to turn up. Then two. At first, no one thinks much of it. Zeta's gone missing plenty of times before and always returns with a new plan for his life. But as the months pass and the rumors fly, the family starts worrying. As far as they know, Marco's the last person to hear from Zeta. A whole year passes with no word. After three years, Hunter S. Thompson hires a PI on Rolling Stone's dime. He's going to track down Zeta and write an article about whatever happened to him. Except the PI doesn't turn up much of anything. Still, word gets around that Thompson is looking. He gets tips from people who say Zeta's everywhere from Addis Ababa to Acapulco. Then around 1977, Thompson is contacted by a Miami drug runner. Thompson calls this man Drake. Drake says a few months earlier, Zeta offered to pay him $5,000 for a ride on his racing boat. Zeta wanted to go from Miami to the Bahamas and back at midnight. Drake didn't ask questions because it was obviously a drug run. He just took the money and gassed up the boat. They got to the island safely, but on the way back to Florida, another boat shot them out of the water. In the chaos, Zeta made it to shore, then disappeared into the swampland. Now the DEA, FBI, and Coast Guard are all looking for Zeta too. Thompson incorporates this into his Rolling Stone piece, The Banshee Screams for Buffalo Meat. It turns out to be more of a eulogy than a detective story because Thompson comes to the same vague conclusion as Marco and Zeta's second wife, Socorro. Zeta died in a drug deal gone wrong. When and where, they're not sure, but Marco believes his father was mixed up with the wrong people, said the wrong thing, and was killed for it. In the years since, Marco's spoken to some of Zeta's friends in Mazatlan. Though none of them witnessed a fight or a death, they also heard rumors Zeta was murdered by a drug cartel. And even if Zeta wasn't killed by drug traffickers, there are other dangers in the trade, like the drugs themselves. Many people also think Zeta could have died of a drug overdose or drug-induced accident. If you've read or seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the theory explains itself. But that's the problem. The theory fits the character of Dr. Gonzo, not necessarily the real Oscar Zeta Acosta. Yes, Zeta was known to use drugs, and yes, he was involved in trafficking them. But Marco says his dad was never dependent on any substances. He was too committed to his work as a lawyer than a writer, and that Zeta mainly used LSD, a psychedelic. It's almost impossible to overdose on LSD. And his most famous drug use on the trips that inspired Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas were Dexedrine and Benzedrine. Dexedrine is currently prescribed for ADHD, and Benzedrine is a similar drug that's been discontinued. There's potential for abuse, but it's likely they helped Zeta's mental health. But like I said, it had been a rough few years. It's impossible to know where Zeta was at mentally or what other drugs he may have been using. Even if he didn't overdose on a harder drug, it's possible his drug use caused a psychiatric crisis. It's also possible they skewed his vision or made him more clumsy and he fell off the boat and drowned. The point is, Oscar Zeta Acosta was not Dr. Gonzo. 
So while an overdose or drug-related accident seems likely, it might not actually be the best explanation, especially because both Seda's sister and his first wife believe the wheels for his disappearance were spinning well before the Mazatlan trip. Let's go back a few years. By the early 70s, Zeta's really paranoid. He thinks he's being followed. So much so, he hires a bodyguard. Some people blame it on the weed, but apparently Hunter S. Thompson tells Zeta he can't be paranoid enough. Thompson suggests the US government could be out to get him, partly because of his 1970 LA County Sheriff campaign. I mentioned earlier that Zeta runs with the Raza Unida party, whose platform centers on Chicano rights. But Zeta's personal platform is defunding the police. If he becomes sheriff, he'll tear the whole system down. On top of that, he rallies Chicanos around getting their land back from colonizers and governing themselves. It's not just campaigning for fair treatment or better education. He's preaching revolution. Though Zeta gets over 100,000 votes, he loses to a former FBI agent. The system stays right where it is. And the FBI and LAPD put tabs on Oscar Zeta Acosta. The FBI also tracks Zeta during Pro, an illegal operation in which agents surveil anyone deemed politically subversive, especially civil rights leaders. Most famously, they tap Martin Luther King Jr.'s phone. I can't confirm whether they actually listen into Zeta's calls, but when Zeta's second wife, Socorro, leaves him in 1971, she turns over all their letters to the FBI. This might seem harsh, but according to Socorro's brother, Zeta wasn't a great husband. He was unfaithful, physically abusive, and once graffitied her family's house. But the wildest allegation from Socorro's brother isn't that he was cheating on Socorro with just anyone. He was cheating on her with women in the Manson family. Now, there's no evidence Zeta was involved with the Manson family crimes. It's more likely he was just going up to Spawn Ranch to party every now and again. But it would further explain his presence on the FBI's watch list. And here's where we go beyond the kind of theory I usually discuss. But because Zeta's first wife and sister both believed it, it holds weight. They think Zeta was assassinated by the FBI. The feds definitely knew when Zeta went to Mazatlan, and they probably knew he was trafficking illegal drugs. Although Zeta normally had a bodyguard, no one came with him to Mexico. Besides seeing some friends here and there, he was on his own. He was surrounded by dangerous people. If anyone was out to get Zeta, this was the perfect time to strike. And that could also explain why in the wake of his disappearance, the authorities stopped looking for him pretty quickly. There doesn't seem to be any kind of big search effort for Zeta outside of an initial canvas. I know it seems far-fetched, but because his family believes this theory, I wanna give it some airtime. After all, Zeta's political convictions were a key part of his work and identity. Maybe his family has better insight on how that might've factored into his disappearance. At this point, Zeta's loved ones have accepted they'll probably never have clean answers. After all, Zeta led a messy, color-outside-the-lines kind of life. And he won't go down in history as some kind of perfect Chicano savior. But he was a real person, and he deserves to be remembered accurately. As his friend Hunter S. Thompson wrote, his birthday is not noted in any calendar, and his death is barely noticed. But the hole he left was a big one, 
and nobody even tried to sew it up. Zeta's loved ones are determined to make sure the truth is known. According to them, Zeta would want to be remembered as a person who was willing to die for his cause. He may not have been the heavyweight he thought himself to be, but he was fiercely devoted to the fight for Chicano civil rights. That's the legacy his family wants to honor. In part due to Zeta's legal work, the early Chicano civil rights movement did succeed in many of its goals. Today, many Chicanos work in education, and the last two mayors of Los Angeles have been Chicano. The Chicano civil rights movement is ongoing, but these are major wins in the fight for equality. Marco got his father's books, The Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo and The Revolt of the Cockroach People back in print. They're now taught in schools as part of the Chicano literary canon. And here's the final kicker. In the late 1990s, Zeta's sister Anita confronted Hunter S. Thompson. She wanted to know if the rumors that Zeta co-wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas were true. Thompson confirmed Zeta was, quote, responsible for some part of it. So when we remember Oscar Zeta Acosta, we shouldn't think of the sidekick Dr. Gonzo. We should remember the literary pioneer, the lawyer, the brown buffalo, and the voice for his people. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on Oscar Zeta Acosta, we found Bandito by Alain Stavins, Racism on Trial by Ian F. Haney Lopez, Abby Aguirre's New Yorker article, What Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas Owes Oscar Acosta, and Marco Acosta's interview for UCLA's Chicano Narrative Literature class extremely helpful to our research. Or take Zeta at his own words and check out the autobiography of a brown buffalo or the revolt of the cockroach people. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boisrow. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Maggie Admire, edited by Karis Allen, Allie Wicker, and Aaron Lan. Fact-checked by Haley Milliken. Researched by Mickey Taylor. Produced by Aaron Larson. With sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. 
Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part Doomsday Special, free and only on Spotify.